Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. It's a truism to say that anti-Semitic conspiracy theories got going long before the internet. In medieval Europe, the blood libel accusations spread like wildfire, that Jews killed Christian babies and used their blood in religious rituals. It was in Tsarist Russia that the protocols of the elders of Zion were fabricated, a kind of insider account of Jewish plans to dominate the world. This was translated into several languages and became a sort of bestseller. Given the technological limitations of those times, it's difficult to imagine how such notions became so widespread. But today, it's all too easy to spread such stuff. Social media, with its hashtags and memes, provides a worldwide platform. Sander van der Linden explained how, and more importantly why, it works in the Naked Scientist show Social Media, Bad for Our Brains. Well, I think the new media environment is definitely changing the way that people engage with information. I think the big challenge is trying to understand how. So an echo chamber is, you know, imagine sticking your head in a chamber and everybody's absolutely loving what you're saying and sort of reverberating. You're right. This is the right opinion to have. That's the idea of an echo chamber. And perhaps it's created by filter bubbles, which are based on Facebook's and other social media algorithms that tailor content based on your prior click behavior. An increasing number of anti-Semitic posts on Instagram recently prompted the Anti-Semitism Policy Trust to undertake some research. They sought the expertise of the Wolf Institute and in particular, Dr. Julian Hargreaves, Director of Research, to analyse the evidence they had collected. With Julian is Dr. Daniel Stetsky, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for Jewish Policy Research. Daniel. 
Could you first explain how statistical research helps the study of anti-Semitism? Well, the way to explain it is to say statistical research helps the study of anti-Semitism as it helps any other research field, let's say. And instead of uh, focusing on specific people, specific developments in, in this field, I would rather direct the attention of anyone who listens to us to the genuine revolution in the information, processing of information that happened due to the revolution in computer technology, really. So in the past, let's say, if you wanted to know anything about any attitude, anti-Semitism included, the way to approach the subject would be to read widely what others said before you, to approach some historical texts, to approach uh, works of literature, and to see basically the imaging of uh, Jewish individuals and other ethnic and religious groups, in case one was interested in that, in these historical materials and in literature. Today, the situation is different in many areas. The way to approach study of anything, to collect tangible empirical information, is to ask people themselves via survey research. That said, surveys were done in the past as well. It was just quite difficult to do it in the atmosphere of you know, the past where computer technology couldn't do that. So collecting data from surveys involved basically posting paper questionnaires to people, visiting them, etc. That industry existed, but it couldn't generate um, information of the quality and scope that we have today. So it's a rigorous modern approach to an ancient problem, really. Is anti-Semitism online, Julian, simply a rehash of 1,000-year-old plus tropes or something different? The study of anti-Semitism has you know, shed light on these decades-long, centuries-long anti-Semitic tropes, which have been in circulation sometimes you know, since sort of antiquity, sometimes from the medieval period and sometimes from the 19th century. And yes, we do see echoes of that when we look at anti-Semitism across social media platforms. So the idea of Jewish people being greedy or being secretly in control is very much the stuff of the anti-Semitism we see online. Where I think it's a little different is we also see anti-Semitism as a component of online trolling on Instagram in particular, is very chaotic in nature. So we know that whilst anti-Semitism has mobilised and refreshed older historical tropes, we also know that anti-Semitism as a phenomena is capable of adapting to its current context. And we see that again on social media. Anti-Semitism is, has adapted and is now part of this wider issue of trolling and this almost sort of chaotic mischief making which we see across social media platforms. And is that what led you or APT to the study of anti-Semitism on Instagram, on Google and, and, and other social media platforms? That's right. So there's lots of anecdotal evidence and lots of concern within Jewish communities that we were seeing uh, an increase in anti-Semitism online. Also, as the name suggests, the Anti-Semitism Policy Trust are very much interested in guiding the government's responses to these issues. So they're very much involved in current parliamentary planning around the next set of laws that are about to be passed through the new online harms legislation. They're very much uh, part of that. So this study we were asked to do was really to provide some of the evidence and data needed to better protect Jewish communities. 
Well, let's get down to brass tacks. I suppose we should define anti-Semitism. That itself is a podcast in its own right. I think in the area of social research and certainly survey research of this matter, there is a broad consensus about how to ask people about uh, their attitudes to Jews. I must say also that it's a developing area. So as we have certain techniques, but we also keep our mind open on whether or not they're relevant, whether they still measure what we want them to measure. One method of measuring anti-Semitic, uh, the intensity of anti-Semitic feelings is to ask people a very straightforward question. It's very simple. And it's amazing how much it actually informs us, is to ask people what their opinion of Jews is, whether it's negative, very negative, neutral, positive, or very positive. There have been many surveys of attitudes towards Jews that used exactly this question. Uh, Using this question, remaining in the realm of Western civilization, we could find that this particular attitude, negative attitudes towards Jews, is a minority situation. It's a minority position, clearly. We take into account the fact that we live in a world where expressing negativity towards groups is frowned upon. So we may be measuring something imperfectly, in other words. Uh, We may be scraping the surface of this phenomenon just, but that's what we have for now. This is the uh, best evidence to the degree of negativity to Jews that must be so strong that people are prepared to confess, people to admit to it, so to speak. We also have other methods of measuring the negativity. And the important thing that all of these um, methods point in the same direction. The results that we have from them are highly correlated. These other methods test or probe specific anti-Semitic tropes. Some of them, as Julian pointed out, are centuries long. So we ask people in various surveys whether or not they agree with the statement that Jews control the world, for example, or Jews plot against others, or that Holocaust is a myth or grossly exaggerated. So we have an idea to what extent these particular perceptions are present in the population. The important thing that that I would like to emphasize and repeat is that if we correlate the two expressions of antisemitism, the open dislike of Jews, the capacity to say, I don't like them, with endorsement of specific statements, we typically find that a great degree of compatibility. So this is our method so far. I'm very much a student of Daniel's approach, the sort of data-driven, very evidence-based approach to anti-Semitism. And as Daniel said earlier, the beauty of social media platforms is it provides not only the research topic itself, but the methods to go and investigate that topic. We were asked to look at three social media platforms, Google, Instagram, and Twitter. The work on Twitter is ongoing. So today I'll talk more probably about Google and Instagram. I have to say that researchers are limited to quite a high degree, actually, by the access to data on these platforms. So access is by permission and often uh, costs money. You have to pay one of the market research companies who hold the licenses to access data from the likes of uh, Twitter and Instagram. So we started the research of Instagram by conducting a search using search terms. So again, the way that they grant permission is to say, you can have 27 search terms, an odd number, and we will give you data based on those search terms. So we went searching for the types of hashtags that are commonly associated either with 
explicit forms of anti-Semitism or descriptions of Jewish people or Israel that are maybe not necessarily anti-Semitic, but commonly associated with anti-Semitic attitudes. Uh, And so from that initial search, we collected thousands of posts. And then we started to look into the associations between our search terms and the content that was delivered in that hall of data. We found all kinds of things. We found anti-Semitic terms being very closely associated to conspiracy theories. And conspiracy theories, the world of conspiracy theories, was one of the worlds that opened up to us after our initial search. We also found very strong expressions of anti-Israeli attitudes, some of which, I have to say, were not anti-Semitic, and a, a smaller proportion were anti-Semitic. And that echoes findings from Daniel's work, which I think could be neatly summarised by saying that if you want to find a small group of anti-Semitic people, look for a large group of people with anti-Israeli attitudes. And that was very much echoed in, in our work. First of all, let me let me specify where the findings are coming from. In the, the course of 2016-2017, the Institute for Jewish Policy Research conducted a very large study of uh, anti-Semitism. It was an empirical study where we asked people whether or not they had negative attitudes towards Jews, and we also probe specific uh, attitudes. Now, deliberately introduced a set of questions that asked people about their attitudes towards Israel. And in these questions, in writing these questions and developing them, we avoided mentioning Jews where we could. So all of these questions related strictly to Israel, Israeli realities, Israeli political realities, and they were asked separately. So not in any combination with questions about Jews. They were formulated in a very similar manner to the questions about Jews, but they were separate as a module. Now, when we ask these questions and then we analyze the data, we could see two things, really. We could see that uh, anti-Jewish attitudes, classic anti-Jewish attitudes, were correlated with anti-Israeli attitudes, but there wasn't a full overlap between them. So it would be very fair to say, just like Julian said a minute ago, that there is evidence of correlation. And it's a tremendous thing to us for social researchers. It's a tremendous thing for historians to document this continuity. When people argue whether there is continuity or relationship between anti-Israel and anti-Semitic attitudes, we found that that is so. But we also found that political life and social life, we have to exercise a great degree of discernment. There is a very large group of people who hold anti-Israel attitudes, sometimes quite fierce, who are not anti-Semitic. So there are all these overlaps that Daniel and Julian are are describing. I'm intrigued to know, and I speak partly as a parent, whether people are looking for anti-Semitic content or whether they simply come across it. What did you discover, Julian? That's a really good question. So from the two studies that we've published... I can say that on Google, there is evidence that people go looking for anti-Semitism. So we looked at the differences between searches for Jewish jokes and searches for Jew jokes. We anticipated that searches for Jew jokes would be much more offensive, and that is the case. And we anticipated that Jewish jokes would be 
the types of things that you know you might think of commonly as being sort of um, the classics of sort of Jewish humor. On Instagram, it was a little bit different. We didn't see as much evidence of people searching for anti-Semitism. What we found was that when people go searching for conspiracy theories, they're supplied anti-Semitic content by Instagram. Now, that's not to say that there aren't anti-Semitic people on Instagram. And we can see that for some of the more anti-Semitic hashtags used on Instagram, there were sometimes as many as 40,000 people liking them, which suggests, if not anti-Semitic attitudes, then a certain sympathy for anti-Semitic attitudes. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests are Julian Hargreaves and Daniel Stetsky. And we're discussing anti-Semitism online. An article in Horizon magazine on the Naked Scientist website emphasizes the fact that the business models of social media pay little heed to truthfulness. Dr. Marjid Kosravnik, lecturer in media and discourse studies at Newcastle University in the UK, warns how these echo chambers could magnify fake news by reinforcing existing views rather than giving access to information that may challenge them. We are promoted to like views we agree with, as liking is a form of endorsement and helps certain views to become more visible, he said. This is, of course, done to maximise profit through targeted advertising and promotions. This overwhelming individual marketing approach dismantles society as a collective, and when it is applied to politics, it replaces necessary truths with satisfaction by reinforcing your opinion. I'd like to pick up on the question of the business of social media companies. I think you touched on before the break, Julian, that Instagram were not necessarily helpful when it came to your research. Firstly, how did you overcome the problem and what advice do you have and what should social media companies be doing about anti-Semitic content? Social media companies do not make it easy for outsiders to access their data. The better access of data comes when you cooperate with social media companies, when you sort of have a look under the hood. But to do that involves you suggesting a topic that they want to research. And if you're asking them to research online hatred as an outsider, the chances of getting full access to their data are pretty slim. What they prefer to do is to make their data available for market research. So how many people around the globe are talking about cars? How many people are talking about certain brands of clothing? That's what they really provide their data for. So what you have to do is kind of co-opt the methods and adapt them for your own purposes. So what we did was to use the commercially available tools to gather data but then feed that data through other open source tools, some of which were developed at the University of Wolverhampton, some of which were were of our own design. So we kind of have to sort of jimmy the system a little bit, use a bit of a kind of DIY method and cobble together market research, open source software. Daniel, did you also face problems in your study of anti-Semitism as Julian's outlined? I would like to say that probably our problems, if we had any, are considerably less significant in that respect. We found out that to survey population of Britain or any other 
population on issues of hate, negativity towards Jews and towards others. It's not a straightforward matter in a sense that you may come across a situation where a particular company, I wouldn't name any particular company now, but Apple and company would be very careful about presenting those questions to public because they remain under public scrutiny. What if their survey is misinterpreted? What if anyone, a journalist typically, with a particular mindset, with a particular agenda, would pay attention that this is what they're exploring? They basically offer the population of Britain very extreme statements about Jews. So this is obviously, this can be misinterpreted and taken against them. So these are the kind of obstacles that researchers encounter. On our side, we could overcome them. We could rephrase certain sentences. So ultimately, I don't think we are in a situation where research is compromised in any way. I'm just intrigued, Daniel. I'm genuinely interested in what the Institute for Jewish Policy Research, actually, what difference this research makes. Do you offer guidance to companies? Do you follow up in, in terms of checking what they're doing? I think Julian can perhaps specifically comment on Google or Instagram. But I'm just wondering more generally, Daniel, your studies, frankly, what difference do they make? I think uh, the answer is this. The role of science in general And statistics, demography, social statistics are no different in that respect. The role of science is to describe the reality, to show people what actually is happening, and to develop methods that uh, would capture the reality in the most reliable way. So I would say that before this particular and seemingly small piece of research that I referred to, that we, the, the Institute for Jewish Policy Research conducted in 2017, it wasn't entirely clear to people whether the whole body of survey research about antisemitism actually holds water. Is that true? And how do we understand the fact that antisemitic attitudes in the UK are very low in prevalence? What does it mean? low in prevalence? What's high? What is dangerous? How do we identify that threshold where danger starts? So I think we made a contribution to understanding of this question. Um, Now, for anyone who wanted to know, yes, there can be a situation where attitudes, certain attitudes are low in um, expression or low in prevalence, but they can be very worrying to those people for whom it matters. These two realities, that they coexist, they can coexist, and they do regularly. And that is consequential not only for Jews, but for various ethnic and religious minorities too. We found out, for example, that levels of negativity towards Hindus are very low. Uh, they're similar to the levels of negativity towards Jews, but yet again, these, these levels, however low they look, they may be worrying for members of these ethnic groups for good reason. Okay, Julian, over to you. We've got the description of the reality, the detail, the granularity, if you like. So take on Instagram. What does it need to do? In our report on Instagram data, we make three key recommendations. The first is that Instagram should do a detailed review of conspiracy theories across its platform. The second is that Instagram should develop the algorithms needed to filter out anti-Semitic content. And the third recommendation building on that is that we call on Instagram to make the technology available to identify when anti-Israel or anti-Zionist language is associated with anti-Semitism. 
listeners to the podcast can go to the Wolf Institute website and download a copy of the Google report and the Instagram report. As a researcher of anti-Semitism across social media platforms, we have to be realistic. We can't be naive about the contribution this research makes. Social media companies are incredibly wealthy and incredibly powerful, but there seems to be a bit of a change in the climate and there seems to be more negotiation now between government and social media companies. So I would see this particular research into Google and Instagram and Twitter as providing some of the data needed for that conversation. We've also been in conversation with Ofcom and I think our work has demonstrated to Ofcom, they're the non-governmental body that act as the watchdog for communications and media across the country. Our work, I think, is giving Ofcom a little more confidence that these methods and this toolkit that we're collaboratively putting together, myself, Daniel, colleagues at places like Cardiff University, this toolkit that is coming together is being made available to organisations such as Ofcom to give them the methods and also the confidence to go out and complete the picture of not just the nature of online harms, but the extent of it and the types of people who are perpetrating it, the types of people who are most at risk from it. But let's get down to real brass tacks, okay? This is a study of Instagram. So what should Instagram be doing about this content? What I think Instagram should do, first and foremost, is to recognise that there is content on their platform that in other situations would be illegal. So, for instance, if you were to say some of the things in public on a street corner in front of a Jewish person and a police officer, if you were to say some of the things out loud that we've seen on Instagram, you ought to be expecting at least an arrest, if not prosecution, if not a conviction. So first and foremost, Instagram have to realise that the content on their site is very often illegal when it comes to things that are anti-Jewish and anti-Israeli. I think there needs to be a much more sophisticated approach to labelling content as anti-Semitic. In terms of what Google ought to do, they make available certain safe search functions. So there's a public-facing safe search function, which can be switched on and off to control for offensive and explicit material. I would argue, and we argue in the reports, that the public should be given the means to filter explicit content if they choose to do so. We're not talking about censorship across the internet. We're talking about um, the public and users of social media platforms being able to filter content, as they do for pornographic material. Lots of the conversations are about whether we should control social media companies, whether we should hold them to account. I think there are more mundane solutions where we can put the control and filtering elements within the hands of users, within the hands of the public. So I think one thing to remember is this. In the beginning of my um, contribution, I said that we are now, as a civilization, we are living through a period of informational revolution in computer technology and speed of um, accumulating information and speed of distributing information, etc. It's not the first time that that happens. As a, as a technological civilization, we're maybe, I don't know, seriously technological, 100, 200 years old, but it happened already. In the middle of the 15th century, the printing press 
was invented. And that revolutionized, in a way that is very similar to what we are experiencing now, production of information, distribution of information. You could print a book, any book, with great speed and distribute it to the entire world. The first books that were distributed at a great speed, I think anyone would know that it was a Hebrew Bible that was printed. There were many, many copies of it and distributed. Of course, it's a civilizational asset. That's the first thing that would be done. Not many people know, however, that alongside that very noble pursuit, the book that was distributed at a similar pace was a volume in Latin called Malus Maleficarum. It's translated something like a hammer of witches. It was a book about how to identify a witch. And not only identify her, but what to do once she is identified. The point I'm trying to drive home here is that the moment new channel of information distribution appeared, it started distributing sense and nonsense at the same degree of intensity. So obviously, the moment there's new information channel, it distributes anything. It's a reflection of our civilization. It's a reflection of our curiosity, inventiveness, creativity, as well as of our vices. So Google or Instagram, let's say, for the sake of the argument, shouldn't see um, research into distribution of hate as a personal research directed against them. It's really a moment where we ask a question, what to do, how to navigate, in a place where distribution of information is even quicker. So we can distribute sense and nonsense even quicker. And are there consequences, negative mainly, consequences to distribution of nonsense at a much quicker pace? That's the question really we all ought to consider. It reminds me of the story of nonsense is nonsense, but the history of nonsense is scholarship. Julian, could you comment on the question of anonymity? I think anonymity is a really serious issue across uh, social media platforms when it comes to the study of online hatred. And I think the cloak of anonymity provides users with a high degree of of safety and perhaps uh, the impetus to be be, uh, more hateful than they would otherwise be. That's all we have time for this week. Thanks for listening. And to my guests, Julian Hargreaves and Daniel Stetsky, thank you too. Despite all the dire warnings about the dangers of social media, do feel free to contact us with your thoughts and suggestions. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not look at our back catalogue of discussions? We're approaching our 100th episode in the autumn, and they are all available for listening. You may also want to check out our other podcasts at the Wolf Institute or from our friends at The Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with some more guests.